0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning, I'd like to, uh, to welcome you into Redwood this morning, Jay's already uh, given you one welcome, I'll, I'll give you another one, but uh, glad to have you here, especially if you're visiting with us, glad that you're uh, spending some of your weekend uh, here with us. You know that when you get to, to a weekend, if, if you're like me, your your life is busy and chaotic and hectic and any adjective or phrase you want to use there. And sometimes on the weekends, especially on a nice cool Sunday morning, it's nice to just sleep in or find something else to do, but we're really honored that you're here with us uh, worshiping God, celebrating uh, what He's done in your life. Uh, I wonder, too, uh, how many of you um, have been here over the course of the the last few weeks, and especially last week we talked about what you put your hope in. You know, we said the church is the hope of the world, and then I was uh, quickly, uh, or I went on to say how we put our hope in other things often, you know, whether that's uh, you know, politicians or the media or whatever, entertainment, sports, on and on. Uh, I was reminded very quickly Sunday afternoon uh, how much I was putting my hope into a certain sports team. I um, <laughs> told my wife, I said, There are some things that I absolutely make sure I'm practicing before I preach. That one will probably never be one of those. <laughs> but uh, I'm here today because uh, my, my Sooners won yesterday. If they would have lost, I probably would have disappeared for a few days. So, uh, My baseball team made it this far and then has just decided to stop trying after getting to the National League Championship Series. So if any of you want to join me, I'm going to hop on a plane and go to Washington, D.C. this afternoon and take a load of bats with me for the Cardinals because they haven't found them so far through two games of their series. So, No, we're glad that you are here with us. If you are visiting today, if you haven't been here, we we spent the last few weeks on this series called Engage, And, and the whole purpose of this series Engage is basically uh, here's what we need to be doing. If you want to uh, become a member of a church, become a Christian, whatever. Uh, there's a long list of what we need to do, and really we focus more on what we need to do more so than what we shouldn't do, but, but specifically we said there are five steps you need to take to get kind of fully locked in, fully engaged with the church. Some of these are umbrellas, you know, they're not just like a, a real quick simple thing, but we talked about these over the last few weeks, how, how we need to learn to worship more authentically. Uh, We we need to share our story, connect in groups, serve uh, the church, and and serve our community. And then last week we talked about uh, why we give, you know, not just saying, hey, open up the pocketbooks and give us your money. No, here's why. Here's why we do this, because this is where our heart should be. And and as we go through series like this, sometimes, uh, I said this last week, it's easy to assume if if you're like me, that everybody knows what, what I'm talking about. Or that everybody just assumes or I assume that everybody knows uh, what it means to do this or to do that. I said this last week and in the week before i 'm what you call a buick i 'm a brought up in church kid you know so every Sunday of my life pretty much was spent in seats you know in, in various churches in, in different parts of this country and, and and so for me, a lot of the stuff that we talk about is just common sense. but for somebody who hasn 't done that or, or hasn 't been in church throughout their life or has been in a different type of church. Sometimes just the, the, the phrases that we use, the, the, the vernacular that we use, calling this room a sanctuary, for example. Some people may have no idea what we're talking about. And so what I'm going to do today is actually kind of take this engaged series and take a huge step back with it and kind of step into just here's a couple of things we do every Sunday or a couple of things that, that we, 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 we preach that you should do if you're a follower that it's very easy for some of us to just assume everybody knows what we're talking about. And specifically today, we're going to look at two practices that we here at Redwood uh, believe in, that we here at Redwood uh, preach, that we here at Redwood, uh, if you're a member, probably have already done this and are currently doing this. We're going to talk about baptism and communion, specifically. Because again, it's easy for me to assume people know what I'm talking about. Maybe for you, you're the same way. It's easy for me when we pass the trays at the end of the service to assume everybody knows what communion means and is all about, or why we do baptism the way that we do. So we're just going to take a big step back here. If you've been in church for a long time, this is, is going to be a little bit of a refresher for you, kind of, kind of taking off the preacher hat, putting on the, the teacher hat a little bit more today, um, but I want to look at these. If, if you're unfamiliar with these terms, hopefully this is... A little bit informative or, or eye opening to you. The first one we're going to look at is baptism. We, we, we talk about baptism uh, often at the beginning of somebody's walk with, with Jesus. Uh, baptism uh, c- can, can take place, there's really no designated age for people to get baptized. Uh, I, I know sometimes people go, Well, how old should, should somebody be to be baptized? I'm like, Well, you know, however old you want to be, as long as you kind of understand what's taking place. Uh, It's different for certain kids. It's not like we we took one place in the Bible and it says, oh, they need to be 12 years, six months, and 13 days old. You know, nothing like that. What it says is that that should be your response to understanding the grace of God and the grace of Jesus. Kind of read about baptism in the Gospels. Jesus gets baptized, but when it comes to the church, one of the very first things that takes place after the formation of the church in Acts 2 is baptism. In fact, uh, basically, just to kind of recap this in Acts 2, uh, Jesus has ascended back into heaven. You know, he, he has been crucified. He rose from the dead. He was on the earth for 40 days. He, he then goes back to heaven, and the apostles spend about 10 days just trying to figure out what's next. <laughs> what do we do? You know, they're up in this upper room, sort of hiding, sort of preparing, sort of brainstorming. What, what do we do? We need to replace Judas because, you know, he flamed out, so what do we do? And, and then the Holy Spirit shows up. The church starts, Peter in in Acts 2 gives this amazing sermon to to initiate the church, and people are captivated. His his sermon basically culminates with the idea that Jesus is Lord. And in verse 37 of Acts 2, it says this, when people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter's response is twofold, repent and be baptized. And it says from there, people just came and they were baptized by the thousands. The church instantly became huge. People flocking to be baptized. And so we look at this twofold response here, and, and, and you see kind of the first part of it is, is to repent. That just simply means to turn away from a sinful lifestyle. What you were doing to this point, okay, we need to stop doing this now and start focusing instead on, on Jesus, going a different direction, if you will. But the second part of this, to be baptized, that's, that's what we'll, we're going to focus on for just a few minutes here. See, I think that, that Peter says this, be baptized, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus, if you, if you go back to the beginning of the Gospels, one of the first things we read about Jesus in his adult life is him coming to be baptized. We read about his birth in Matthew and Luke. You know, Mark and John don't cover the, the Christmas narratives, but Matthew and Luke cover the, the birth narratives. Luke has one story about him when he was about 12 years old. And then jump ahead, and we read about him being baptized. And what I like about the story with Jesus being baptized is he seems like the least likely person ever to have needed to be baptized. But yet He did. So what I want to kind of, kind of do is, is to look at the baptism of Jesus to explain why we do it, preach it, and practice it today, and really there's three reasons why Jesus was baptized. The first is it marked a very clear uh, turning point in his life. Uh, for example, when we, we see Jesus, he's approximately 30 years old. Up to this point, yes, he's God in the flesh, but by and large, he's just a guy, you know, he's... We don't really know much about Jesus other than that one little story at 12 years old from his birth all the way up to 30 years old. But as he's baptized, what that does is that initiates basically a new phase of Jesus' life. Once he's baptized, then he goes on preaching. In fact, he's baptized, he goes out and, and is tempted for 40 days, and then he returns, and one of the first things that is recorded of him saying is, what? The kingdom of God's at hand. Here he's coming, preaching, moving forward. In other words, you could kind of look at it this way. Not how many of you are are, are readers, how many of you like to read books specifically like novels or, or nonfiction, or I'm sorry, fiction types of books. But as you're reading, wherever you're at in your book, you've always got pages on the left, pages on the right. What do the pages on the left represent? That's what you've read. That's the story to get you to the point where you are right now. What are the pages on the right? what you haven't read yet. It's what's coming. You might have an idea what's coming. You might not have any idea what's coming. But the the point of this is, wherever you are on your page right here right now, that's the spot in your life that baptism kind of marks. In other words, what has happened before has led you to this moment. What's happening now is going to define what happens next. So when you look at baptism, it kind of marks that a change in terms of, it's, it's no longer you writing your own story, it's you accepting that God is writing your story for you. And it's you molding your story into His. It's you molding your life into His. Uh, we, we, we use uh, these, these phrases sometimes uh, when, when we're, we're talking about the symbolism of baptism, that it represents the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why you'll hear the phrase, baptized into Christ, uh, sometimes said. And, and, and Paul talks about this in Romans 6, how, how when we are baptized, we're dying to our old self, going under the water. And, and, and when you're under the water, then you are buried, and then you raise again, kind of like Jesus. Uh, I loved when we were at the church in, in Phoenix. Uh, of course, it's Phoenix, so they all have outdoor baptistries that are really cool. Uh, and, and the one we were at, the, their, their main campus there in Peoria, they had their baptistry right next to this big hill. And then halfway up the hill was an empty tomb, and at the top of the hill was a cross. And when you stood in front of the baptistry, you stood back a little ways from the baptistry, you could see the symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection. Coming from the top all the way to the bottom. And it was a beautiful reminder. And every time we had baptisms there, uh, we made sure to kind of illustrate that and highlight that, that that wasn't just, you know, some little design thing that worked out. No, that was intentional in the way they created that space. See, here at Redwood, we, we look at it from this approach. If you're visiting today, if, you're, if you've been coming for a few weeks, we kind of look at it from this approach that, that you don't have to have everything figured out when you get here. That's what we're here for, is to help, help you figure it out. In other words, we say, kind of like we want you to come here and belong to our body, belong to this community, and through belonging to this community, come to believe in Jesus, and then as you come to believe in Jesus, you learn how to become like Jesus. That's the goal of a Christian, right? I mean, for me anyway, I want to become more and more like Him every day. I want to become more like the person of Jesus in terms of how I interact with others, how I worship God, how I serve the church, how I serve everybody else. And I think God's calling you to something similar. Maybe maybe you've realized it, maybe you haven't realized that yet, but baptism is a sign of surrendering to this. Again, you don't have to have everything figured out before you were baptized. If that's the case, I need to go back and do it again, because I was 13 years old, thought I had it figured out, like most 13-year-olds. I was several years older before it started making more sense to me. Now, I knew what I was doing in the moment. I knew that I was giving my life to Jesus, but again, I didn't have all the doctrine and theology and everything figured out when that took place. I do think it's funny, and I think I've told this story before. That, that my pastor at the time was—he's um, was a very sarcastic individual, very, very uh, like to joke with with everybody, like to uh, keep things light. And you never really knew if he was serious or not, which I think is just a horrible quality for a pastor to have, by the way. <laughs> Sarcasm, by the way. Um, but he told me. He said, I-, "I know what your life has looked like. I'm going to have to hold you under the water for quite a while." <laughs> and specifically, he said. I'm going to hold you under until I quit seeing bubbles come up. I said, old man, I'll leg sweep you and you'll come down with me. (laughs) But the point was this. When you step into that water, that turning point happens. We're we're not literally dying. If we have, we've really done the baptism wrong and then we apologize. But you, in in a way, I kind of look at it this way. You're you're putting your life, in a way, in in somebody else's hands. Because, I mean, if he really, really wanted to, if he was really just evil, he could have held me down there as long as he wanted to. So I was, in a way, putting my life in his hands, dying to myself, giving something up. And was buried and then raised again. Now, the way baptism works, you know, it's not like there's a, a certain uh, dress code or a certain, you know, we have to hold you down for so long because you've got this long list of sins or what. It, it's nothing like that. It's boom, boom, right back up. In fact, ours... I don't even think it's deep enough to hurt anybody. (laughs) You lay down and come right back up. You're sitting there and lay down and come right back up. But here's the thing that you understand is as you die to yourself, and we use that term, and it may sound like a harsh term, but it, it represents the symbolism of what Jesus does in your life. Because as you die to yourself, you are reborn as a new creation in him. And the Bible is very clear that that when we come to Christ, when we accept his gift of grace in our lives, we are no longer defined by what we used to be defined by. We are simply defined by one phrase, friend of God. We move from this place of being an enemy of God, and this again may sound harsh, but if you're living a life of sin, point blank, God loves you, but you are an enemy of God. Baptism marks that change in your life. That you are no longer an enemy, you are a friend. You've accepted his gift of reconciliation. Here's the second reason that Jesus was baptized. I think we should as well. Baptism marked or was a public expression of Jesus' commitment to God. We think about public expressions, okay? Specifically, think about it in terms of ceremonies. We have ceremonies for, for everything nowadays. And think about a ceremony maybe you've gone through that you had public there to watch, or you had friends and family there to watch, or maybe some of you didn't. Things like a graduation ceremony. We've got graduations like for every grade now. I'm really glad we've dodged the bullet and haven't had to go through a preschool or kindergarten graduation yet with our kids. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we see these at, at all the grade levels, you know, for, for high school, for college, on and on and on. And, and it's a celebration. What are we celebrating? The next phase of life. A wedding is, is a great example. We, we come together and, and we, um, we, we celebrate. You don't have to have a huge crowd to get married. You can go to the courthouse and do it and have somebody sign for it and you're good to go. But no, what do we do? We typically have it someplace, whether it's a church or someplace outside, uh, that, that is you know beautiful, that, that people want to be at, that, that we're going to have memories. And we want as, as many of our, our friends and family there as we can to celebrate with us. Why? Because we want to let everybody know exactly what this person means to us. Jennifer and I got married. I didn't even know half the people there. And they were on my side. <laughs> you know, it's just like we joke that we're related to the entire county, what we, we are. But, you know, it was this enormous group of people that came to watch us make a commitment to each other. In a lot of ways, baptism functions the same way. Do you have to have witnesses for baptism to count? No. <laughs> Think about that. You go and you get you get a public expression. You get to publicly tell the world, I have surrendered to God. I have surrendered to Jesus. There's a lot to that. And and yeah, sometimes it's cool just to do it so that you can get up and and you have every, like, if you do it here, I mean, man, people this place goes nuts. You know, those of you who have seen baptisms here, you understand that. There you go. Except it's like a hundred woos. Not just one woo, a hundred woos. You know, But that's not really what it's about. It's about the people that that, that respond that way understanding what you've done, understanding that we are called to submit to God. And submission's not a term we like to hear about. Why? Because submission indicates weakness, it indicates somebody else is one. You know, when it comes to God, I'm okay admitting I'm weak and that He's one. And you should be too. Because we can't figure this out on our own. So, so when you, 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 you give that public expression of your faith, man, you are telling the world, God is my new number one. God is my new number one, and I have no problem admitting that. The third reason that Jesus was baptized is, is, kind of follows on that second one. It was an expression of his humility. So here's the thing about Jesus. I, I said this earlier. When John was baptizing people, he was baptizing them to cleanse them of their sins. Jesus had never sinned. So why exactly was Jesus going to get baptized to to, to cleanse his sins that he didn't have? Because he wanted to show that he's not above anybody else. He wanted to show that. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 3 when when we read the story of Jesus' baptism. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John, this is John the Baptist, uh, tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and here you come to me. This is an easy verse to read. And you're like, well, that makes, you know, I see Jesus' humility there. But the key phrase here is in the details of Jesus' trip. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. That's like a 75-mile trek out of his way. Jesus is in Galilee, which is up in the very, uh, it was the northern region of Israel. I mean, it still is, but up in the very northern region of, of Israel. Um, the Jordan River, the spot where Jesus was baptized, is kind of in the middle, closer to Jerusalem. And this isn't like today where you hop in the car and drive 75 miles and get there in, you know, an hour, hour and a half. No, this was like several days' journey for Jesus to go down there. So basically, Jesus and, and, and his group, they, they go down from Galilee all the way down to the Jordan, he's baptized. Then he goes like a mile or so over to the west into the mountains where he is out in the wilderness for forty days being tempted. And then he comes and goes right back up to Capernaum in Galilee, seventy-five miles away, to start his ministry. So this was an intentional trek by Jesus. And John's response to him is probably what ours would be: "No, no, you need to be baptizing me." But Jesus did this, why? Because Jesus, as Paul writes in Ephesians, gave up those rights of God to come be one of us. He realized an important truth here, he couldn't reach us and save us unless he became one of us. And often I think we need to kind of keep that in mind, not just when it comes to baptism, but when it comes to our approach as Christians. We want to reach people, we need to go where they are. We need to get out of our own way and go to reach others. Now, w- one thing I want to talk about with baptism before we kind of move on is, is specifically kind of how we practice baptism. Because I know a lot of you came from church backgrounds where uh, you, 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 were, you were sprinkled by, by a, a pastor or a priest. And what I want to kind of look at is here at Redwood, we practice what would be called immersion baptism, full immersion, where you're basically put all the way under the water and you're brought back up. The reason, um, the reason that I bring this up is, is we've had conversations with people uh, who were raised, whether it was Catholic or Methodist or, or whatever uh, it might have been, and they'll say, well, you know, I was sprinkled as a child. Do I need to be rebaptized? And my response is always not a direct yes or no, because I don't really function that way. I like to make people work for their answers. I'll say, well, here's what the Bible says about it. Why don't you read this and then get back with me? And in particular, when you read through the New Testament, here in Acts, like we just saw that that verse, that that response Peter gave, and and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, we see this word, baptizo. That top there is actually in the Greek, I just put it there because it's fun to look at and try to figure out what it might mean. But it's the Greek word, baptizo. And baptizo, the definition is to dip or submerge. So, I mean, it kind of tells you it's actually going under the water. And what's fascinating about this word for me, if, if, if you like this sort of thing, is elsewhere in antiquity, outside of the Bible, we would see this same word used to describe kind of the process of putting, like, dirty clothes under the water and scrubbing them clean. So, you kind of use that imagery to kind of go along with this. And I, I kind of, you know, like to think of when you're under the water, it's almost like God's got an old washboard underneath you and is just scrubbing you clean. And you come up white as snow. And and when you look at this throughout the New Testament, when we see this word, uh, the the, the, the difference between, you know, what we practice in terms of of making the decision to be uh, baptized, whether it's as a child or or as an adult, uh, versus, you know, being, being sprinkled as a child, is we read throughout the New Testament, every time we see baptism it's a conscious decision made by a person in response to the grace of God. And so what we kind of look at it like, like this is, is that sprinkling was a decision that your, your parents made for you. And it's not a bad decision. We do something similar where we call it a dedication of a child. And what it is, is it's basically the parents saying, we are making a commitment to raise this child up for the Lord, to walk for God, to, to walk with God. And that's a great decision to make. It's a great decision because I know us us as parents, it's like we asked for accountability from from, um, our our family and our friends. Like, hey, make sure, you know, we're not leading our kids astray. But yet, a parent's decision can't save a child for God. If it could, there'd be a lot of parents across the world with a lot less stress on their lives right now. (laughs) Maybe some of y'all in this room. So, when when we talk about baptism, that's kind of where we're coming from. And the challenge I always have for you, if if you're on the fence about it, if you're questioning about it, is simply this. Jesus never asks you to do anything he hasn't already done himself. So when it comes to following God, uh, one one of my old pastors used to say, your first step out of the baptistry is your first step on your walk with him. So kind of understand that as we talk about baptism. Second thing we're going to talk about today is, is communion. Something we do at the end of every service and something that, again, if you're like me, it's very easily Uh, Easy to assume everybody in the room knows what you're talking about. And and with communion, I I know too. Wherever you go, uh, probably every church you go to is going to do it differently. Uh, Here at at Redwood, uh, here in just a little bit, uh, if you've not been here before, uh, we're going to have some trays passed, and you're going to find uh, a uh, little—we call it a piece of bread. Let's be honest, it's a cracker. Um, It's a tiny little saltine, Um, and you're going to find this tiny little cup of juice that. Oddly resembles a shot glass. <laughs> I didn't say that, okay? <laughs> yes, a small shot glass, okay? That's <laughs> a good thing we're about to talk about communion, okay? <laughs> And what we do here is is normally at the end of our service, we take about a three to five minute window uh, to do this. And it's very easy, it's very easy for this to feel routine or like, well, we're just doing it because we do it. But the reason I want to talk about this today is because in that three to five little minute window, whether it's our church or another church, there's really more significance packed into that tiny little window of our church than everything else that we do. Because in that moment, we are actually experiencing something we probably don't even fully understand and realize. And again, I don't know how you've done this at different churches. I grew up in a church where we didn't take this every week. We took this like once a quarter. Uh, or, or some churches would take it monthly. Um, a lot of churches in, in our, our brotherhood of churches, the Christian churches, do it on a weekly basis uh, f- for that, that weekly reminder. Uh, some churches you'll go to, um, th- th- there will be... Um, not a cup that everybody gets individually, but there's one cup that everybody shares, and the germaphobes have to decide how much I really want to follow Jesus today because I'm drinking out of the same cup as everybody else, right? You're like God, this is your blood. Cleanse all the germs. Get the sickness out. Yeah. Or some cases, there's one piece of bread, and you you tear a piece off and and you eat that, um, or or you know it's it's administered by a pastor or a priest. There's a dozen or more different ways to observe communion, sometimes called the Eucharist, which is a fancy word, but but it it basically boils down to this. We are taking a moment to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made by sharing in it with him, by sharing in that sacrifice. And I know sometimes, too, if you go to a new church, uh, how communion is taken can feel awkward I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but maybe you felt that way here, and, and we don't mean to make it that way, it's just that it's different than what you're used to. But here's the thing, the how, in terms of communion, is not nearly as important as the why of communion. See, some churches you're going to get, like here, it's grape juice and, and a cracker, some churches it's, it's wine and bread, the details of it aren't as important. Somebody's asked us, why, why do you use grape juice instead of wine? Well, number one, it's cheaper, um... But number two, we we don't ever want to put something in front of somebody that could be a stumbling block for them. And for some people, even that tiny little, as we just heard, very small shot glass of wine could be a stumbling block. We don't want that, especially in this moment when we are trying to symbolize perhaps the greatest event in human history. So to, to, to look at this with communion, there's a very, very powerful passage, very famous passage many of you are aware of, If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to kind of camp out there for the the last few minutes that we have here today. And and look at this because what we see here is Paul giving instructions for how to do this. And a lot of churches you're going to go to, they might even read this passage every week. They might look at this same passage on a regular basis in terms of of how to, to do this. But here's how he starts this passage off. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we, we look at this, couple of things to understand about communion, and, and I'm not saying that every single time we, we take it you have to remember all of this, but I want you to understand why we do this and, and, and why we take this time and why for some people you'll see them, like take the, the cup and the, the, the bread and just really sit there and hold it for a few minutes. Some churches, like the one I grew up in, we would pass them out and everybody would hold them and we'd take them together. Uh, again, the how, not as important really as, as the why. So what we want to look at is is how communion really shapes our focus in terms of what Jesus did for us. The first thing we need to understand about communion is this. Communion looks backward. But it doesn't look backward to Jesus. It actually looks backward an extra almost 2,000 years to Moses. So you read the story and and Moses uh, has run off from his Israelites. He's, He's killed an Egyptian in anger and run off. And God shows up to him. Because how many of you know that sometimes when you're trying to run away from God, he, he can find you? You know, it's kind of weird like that. But he finds him, and what's he do? He tells him, Go back to Egypt, save my people. So he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, as Charlton Heston so powerfully said. Time and time again, nothing. And time and time again, he, uh, he, you know, he's basically threatened, hey, this, some bad stuff's going to happen. And so what do we read about in Exodus? God sends all of these plagues on the Egyptian people, and Pharaoh doesn't get it. And so finally, after like, what, nine plagues, he sends kind of the, the ultimate plague, the death of the firstborn. And, and this was warned even to the Israelites, hey, this will affect you too unless you do something specific. So what did he instruct them to do? Go pick your lamb, bring your lamb into the house, slaughter it, roast it, consume the entire thing, and then take the blood of it and paint it across your doorpost, the top and the sides of your doorpost, marking your house as the home of one of my people so that when this death angel, which always sounds so weird to say, comes, he will pass over, the phrase comes from, pass over these homes in order to save you. And so that's, that's where the term Passover came from. And understand, too, when we take communion, we take these, these symbols here, we're, we're kind of recreating or joining in the Last Supper that Jesus had the night before he left. We talked about this a few weeks ago in service. That was a Passover meal. The Jews would celebrate this every year. They still do sometimes it's called a Seder meal, but, but they're, they're recreating this meal. And understand this too about the Passover meal. It was something that every Jew did every year, but it was also very, very complex and complicated. And I'm glad Terry McAllister is not here this morning to correct me on all this. Because if you want expert on Jewish culture and, and the Seder meal, man, Terry knows this stuff backward and forward. But basically, the meal would work this way. The, the, the food was eaten kind of in a specific uh, order. There were specific things on the plate. Uh, and, and they would have some sort of green vegetable uh, that represented life. And, and it was representing the life that God gave to them. And, and what they did was they would take that and they dip it into salt water and then eat it. And, and the reason they do that is because the salt water represents the tears that their ancestors shed in slavery. And then they would take another green vegetable, and they would dip it into this mixture of very bitter herbs that that contains like horseradish and very harsh, very bitter herbs. And and they eat that to remember, to to share in the bitterness and the harshness of slavery that their ancestors endured. Next, they take something called the haroset, which of all the, the stuff on the plate might be the best. It's, it's this kind of mixture, kind of looks like hummus. It's this mixture of apples and honey and cinnamon and nuts and, and sometimes red wine, and it's, it's mixed together. And they do this because it resembles the mortar and the bricks that they used to build for the Pharaoh while they were in slavery. Then they have kind of the odd thing out they have an egg, a raw egg, some, or not a raw egg, it's, it's, a, it's a boiled egg or a roasted egg, and that represents life. Represents new life in particular, because, because that, when you peel the egg, it's, it's pure and it's white. And it represents this new, clean, pure life that God has given them in deliverance. And then kind of the most important thing on the plate was the shank, or the bone, of a lamb. Specifically the lamb they had just roasted and eaten, because you see, the lamb of God was what was going to come and take away their sins. In those days, they would use their own sacrificial lamb. But it was the lamb of God that protected them during... Passover, and then saved them later on. And then they had a cup of wine. They actually had four cups of wine, but one specifically represented the blood of that lamb that they spread on their doorpost to spare them that night. And then the last thing they would have is a big piece of unleavened bread, which, again, kind of resembles a cracker, which is why we use these. Unleavened bread, it, it may look like pita bread or something. It's basically very flat. Sometimes it's crunchy. You can break it as opposed to tearing it. It's unleavened because God instructed them not to use leaven or, or yeast. Number one, because he said, hey, get out of Egypt, so bake your bread and go. If you're a baker, I'm not. Bread takes time, right? Closest I ever came was I worked in Pizza Hut once, and we made dough, and you had to make it the day before and let it rise. But he didn't have time for that. The other side of that, too, is, is for the Jews, yeast represents sin. And that it doesn't take very much to impact and affect a life. So all of those were on the plate. And, And I say all that not so that you can remember all of this, so when we take communion later, you're going, okay, well, this is the bitter herbs part. No, no, it's not that. Everything on the Passover plate was significant because what it did is it told a story. Specifically, it told Israel's story. It told Israel's story from the harshest of harsh days up to now up to the promise that they have moving forward with God. And and, and so for Jesus to hold a traditional Passover meal that night, that last night, before he went to the cross, and for him to tell his disciples, this this bread, this is me. This is my body. Forget everything you think you know about it. This is me. And you're going to eat this, and you're going to consume me. That sounds weird, right? Okay, Uh, And then he takes the cup of wine, and he goes, no, no, this is my blood. First off, let's, let's be honest. If you're there, you've been following him for a while, and then he says this stuff, you're kind of like, wait a minute, this is getting a little weird, Jesus. What he's saying is, all of Israel is manifested through me. Let's change the perspective here a little bit, Okay. Let's say that, that that I jumped up here on the Fourth of July, wrapped in American flag, saying everything about America is manifested through me. <laughs> when you sing those songs, you're singing them about me. Yes, bring me. You're tired. You're poor. You know, all and on and on. Like you're saying, like man, you are insane. You're crazy. That's what Jesus just did. Everything about Israel, everything about the story of Israel leads to him. And here's the craziest part. This isn't the first time he's done this. I don't know what the apostle's reaction was, but the first time he does this, we know what the reaction of everybody was. It was two years earlier, right after one of his biggest miracles that we read about in John, where he feeds 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, with what, you know, two fish and five loaves of bread? And what do we read about in John 6? The very next day, all those people showed back up. Why? Because they wanted more food. They're like, okay, dude, you did this amazing meal with nothing yesterday. I know you got to have some leftovers. Or I know, like, I can go out here for five minutes and catch a meal for, you know, 30,000 people. And what does he tell them? He says, no, you came back because you're hungry still, because I fed you with real, tangible food you can see and hold. But if you want to eat something that's never going to let you down, you need to consume me because I'm the bread of life. And specifically, he says this in John 6, truly I tell you that unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They thought he was insane. And you know how we know this? Because it says 5,000 people stopped following him that day. Jesus, in this moment, when we talk about sharing in his body and his blood, we are talking about sharing in the very deliverance that God provided. We are sharing in that blood of the lamb that was Jesus. Remember back to when he was was baptized, what's John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God. Who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus came to save us, and by taking communion, we look back. That's why every week, I, I'm reminded by my wife that I repeat myself every week when I say this, we remember what He did for us. But here's the other thing about communion, it helps us look forward. We don't just look backward, we look forward. Paul goes on here in verse 26, He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now we're looking forward. I don't know if you ever do this during communion. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't always think about this. I'm usually thinking backward. But we do this until he comes. You see, Jesus came and he died on the cross and then he went to heaven. And that was all necessary, but it's also temporary. Because Jesus was very clear in John chapter 14 that he's coming back. He says this, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Jesus, again, he ascends to heaven at the beginning of Acts, and that's where we're still at today. And I know sometimes you might go to church, churches and they talk about well we're living in the last days and and you know maybe they're they're reading prophecy or they're you know lying, reading Revelation while watching you know CNN or Fox News and, and trying to see how everything lines up. That's not what I'm talking about, because from that first day in Acts we have been living in the last days. The apostles thought that Jesus would return during their lifetime, and I think probably every generation since has thought or hoped the same. See, I'm not, I don't want to derail this too much into Jesus returning. Because when it comes to that, I, I don't get caught up in, in how he's going to come back. There's several people can argue about, well, he's going to come back in a, in a rapture and take the church, and then there's going to be this tribulation, or, or he's just going to show up. And it's I don't care. He's going to come back, and that's all that I need to know. So I'm going to get myself ready for that. Just like I'm going to get myself ready in case I don't live through the day. I want to be ready to see him in case that happens. We we know this. Life's fragile. And there's so many things out of my control in my lifetime. But here's the thing about Jesus. We've been waiting now 2,000 years for him to return. And somebody goes, well, well, how do you know he's going to? Because everything else he said he was going to do, he's done. When a guy's batting like, you know, 10 for 10, I'm pretty confident he's going to get 11 for 11. You know, I'm pretty sure he's going to get that next one as well too because there's nothing that can stop him. There's nothing that can stop him, nothing that can keep him from this. So when we take communion, we not only look backward at what he has done for us, we think forward to what he is going to do for us and for the promises that he has made that are yet to be fulfilled. When we say yet to be fulfilled, I'm not saying they haven't been fulfilled. I'm saying they have yet to be fulfilled. They will be. Maybe not in my lifetime or your lifetime. Maybe, maybe hundreds of years on from now they're still You know, reading new prophecy books that come out and replace the old ones that missed on the bookshelves. But we look backward, we look forward, and finally we look inward and outward with communion. Communion helps us look inward and outward. Verse 27, Paul says this, kind of a very odd and maybe very harsh verse to read. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Okay, who's scared to take communion now? (laughs) Like, hang on a second. You know what Paul's just saying? I mean, did, did you catch all that? Some people are taking communion inappropriately and they are dying because of it. Or they are sick. That's a harsh, harsh verse to read. And I want you to understand this. When we take this, okay, there is a, 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 an amount of reverence that comes with this. This is why we, we turn down the lights and play some soft music because we, we want to try to block out distractions so that you can just be with God. And I think what, what Paul's talking about here is that we have to watch our hearts when we take communion. If we are remembering and honoring what Jesus did for us, how dare we bring anything into this that, that is, is not focused on him? And, I mean, I get it. I've taken communion, and man, I'm so distracted. I've just got so many things bouncing around my head. It happens. Life gets in the way sometimes of us trying to become more like Jesus. It happens. We aren't perfect, and God doesn't expect us to be. What he does expect is an honest and sincere heart that's reaching out for him. One of my college professors, a uh, guy who, who would have the room rolling, cracking up, laughing, and in the instant turn, like he's just a master of getting your attention with that, Have the room rolling in laughter with a joke, and then he would just kind of pause like this in the front of the room and say, Understand one thing. Never, ever approach the throne of God flippantly. Because when you approach the throne of God, you give Him the reverence that He is due. I think communion applies there. We pass these trays every week, and again, it can feel like habit, it can feel like tradition. Well, this is the way we do it. Never, ever, ever let it get that way even if we do it the exact same way every week, man, for me, this is just a personal challenge for me to make sure I don't let it become that way in my own life. So that when I, when I hold this cup and I hold this bread, I'm one of those, yeah, I'll hold on to them for a few extra minutes. Not because I'm trying to, you know, win some contest of seeing who can hold on to it the longest, but because I'm sitting there in that moment. I do. I've got 55 things bouncing around my head. And one by one, I'm trying to eliminate them I don't always get there, but one by one I'm trying to push them to the side and go, God, thank you for taking somebody who is not worthy of this and doing this anyway. For taking somebody who rejected you time and time again and breaking your body and spilling your blood for me. And you don't have to have some great, amazing, long, drawn-out thought or prayer. You just have to approach Him with the respect and reverence that He is due. That's how we guard our hearts. I think sometimes we, we look at this, and you're like, you know, I don't think I can take communion today because, man, I've had a messy week, and, and my heart's not very clean. That's the perfect time to come take communion. This This is not going to take your sins away, okay? Hear me out. This isn't some magic formula. This is like off-brand Welch's grape juice, okay? (laughs) But your sin in your life does not push you away from his table. It invites you into a deeper spot at his table. Because communion helps expose your sin so that you can allow God to cleanse it. The other thing we have to understand is is this helps us look outward because we are sharing in this moment with the community, the family, the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 33. So then my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in passing judgment. Here's an interesting little nugget about this church, and, and really all the New Testament churches, they didn't go to church, they were the church. Like, the church went where they went. They met in homes, in and, and, and basically what we would call small groups. That, that's what they met in all the time. But here's what I want you to understand about, about this. When Paul's writing these words, he's putting them into his, his letter for what we call 1 Corinthians, this wasn't a letter that he just sent out said, well, here's how you do church. This was a letter that went to a church that was falling apart, that was harshly divided. I mean, there were hostilities between both sides because they couldn't agree on how to get along, on how to do things. We think that it's bad that we have church squabbles, we can't get along in the year 2019. This was in like the year 50. Jesus had just left a generation earlier and the church is falling apart. They were just as human as we are. So when Paul writes these these instructions, it's not, you know, hey, here's a communion for dummies book, read it and, and see what you think. No, this is instructions to help put a church back together. And you know what comes in the next couple chapters? Romans 13. Let's look at some context here. The greatest passage on love ever written. He's saying this. He's giving these instructions so that we, the people of God, no matter how much we might disagree on little doctrinal issues or how much we might disagree on things like the volume of the music or the color of the seats or or service times or or all of this, we can say, you know what? In this moment, Jesus died for all of us. And we should never, ever, ever forget that. We should never forget Take that moment for granted. We're going to wrap this up a little bit differently this morning. If you're you're serving communion, I'd like to ask you guys to go ahead and go on back. Because we're going to take this together today. So here's what I'd like to ask. When when the trays are passed, we'll have the lights down, we'll have the music playing, but hold on to your your cup, hold on to your bread. I want to take these together. A little different. If you're visiting and you're like, okay, I'm not, I appreciate all you said, I'm not quite there yet, it's completely understandable if you want to just pass the tray on down. If you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus, we, are, we invite you no matter what church you normally go to, belong to, have, have grown up in, that doesn't matter to me. Because we worship Jesus. That's what matters to me. We come together to worship Jesus and so I'm going to give the guys a, a second to get back here. I'm going to step aside for a moment while they pass these and then come back up. So when you get, get these, please hold on to them for just a moment. God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for his life. <clears throat> so thankful for his death. God, we are so thankful that you mean so much to us that even in our sinful and broken and messy state, you sent Jesus to die for us. Asking these next few times you would bless our time. You would allow us to be with you. In Jesus' name.